John 6 contains some wonderful truths about salvation. Jesus feeds 5,000 people and then compares himself to bread, to the bread that he had given these people. He teaches them that that bread was a sign, and I, Jesus, am like bread which will give you life. If you will but eat and drink of Jesus, John chapter 6 tells us, you shall not hunger, you shall never thirst. Oh, is the bread offered to you? Yes, the bread is offered to you. Jesus says in John chapter 6 and verse 37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. In John chapter 6 and verse 32, Jesus is speaking to people who are evidently unbelieving. And he says, my father gives you the true bread from heaven. In John chapter 6 and verse 40, we read, This is the will of my Father, that everyone, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. There is some wonderful truth here in this passage. Jesus is bread that will give you life. And He is held out to all, each and every one, to the whole world, every individual without exception. To each person, Christ is offered. He is bread that will give you life. We may go into our families, into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces, and we may say to people, Are you hungry? There is bread which having eaten you shall never be hungry again. Are you thirsty? There is drink which having drunk you shall never be thirsty again. This is the will of the Father in heaven that everyone who looks on Jesus and believes will have eternal life. And Jesus Christ will raise him up on the last day. This passage gives us this wonderful good news and shows us this free offer of the gospel to all and sundry. Anyone who will come may come. And Jesus will never cast them out. There is wonderful truth here. Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. Not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. As we read earlier in John chapter 3. Jesus came to live a life of perfect righteousness in the place of sinners who did not. Jesus came to die on the cross Bearing God's wrath in the place of sinners who deserve to bear it themselves. And everybody who looks at Jesus and trusts in His obedience instead of their own. Everyone who looks at the cross of Christ and sees there the spotless Lamb of God suffering substitutionarily in their place. Everyone who looks at Jesus and leans themselves on Him, His life and His death and His resurrection will find that with Jesus, one day they shall also be raised and they shall live with Him forever in His kingdom, given to Him by the Father, as Daniel saw in his visions, that one like a son of man who approached the throne into Him was given an everlasting kingdom. All who trust in that Son of Man who look to Jesus will live in that everlasting kingdom. Jesus is life. 
This is what was meant by the sign, the feeding of the 5,000. That is what was signified. Come to Jesus and you will eat and drink of Him and never die. He will give you life as bread gives us life. These are wonderful truths contained here in John chapter 6. And as we've been making our way consecutively through the Gospel of John, we've been highlighting these wonderful truths and we're not done yet. We're not finishing John chapter 6 today. The issue we are concerned with today as we focus particularly on verses 30 to 46 is why won't the crowd believe or why doesn't the crowd believe? After all, if it's just so... Black and white. Without Jesus you die. With Jesus you live. Well, who would want to die? With, without Jesus you will be hungry, but with Jesus you shall never hunger. Well, who would want to be hungry? Without Jesus you will thirst, but with Jesus you will never thirst. Who would want to be thirsty? If it's just so black and white, if Jesus is just being so clear with these people as He is, why wouldn't they come? Why doesn't this crowd believe? This is the concern of our message this morning. And this will be a sober and a grave message. Because it tells us something that we don't want to hear about human nature. We begin by examining the reasons that the crowd offers for their own unbelief. To begin with, the crowd argues in verse 30 that there is simply not enough evidence to believe in Jesus. What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? In other words, what we would believe if we knew you were credible. We would believe if we knew that what you were saying was true. We would believe that if we knew that the things you are offering us you can actually deliver on. We would believe. But there is simply not enough evidence. This is the thrust of what they say to Jesus in verse 30. What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? We are prepared to believe if you will simply provide enough evidence. This is essentially what's happening in verse 30. Never mind that Jesus has already healed the sick and the crowds knew it. John chapter 6 and verse 2. A large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And it is a subset of those crowds that are now here before Jesus. Like what sign do you do? Healing the invalid by the pool at Bethsaida. How about that sign? Never mind that yesterday... Jesus had miraculously fed 5,000 people. And according to John chapter 6 and verse 14, the people saw the sign that He had done. Yesterday, look at verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea, and it tells us that these were the ones that came over to see. Yesterday, Jesus fed 5,000 people. Today He tells them, I am the bread of life. That, this is that which was signified by what I did yesterday. And they say, there's not enough evidence. 
Just yesterday, these people had enough evidence. Do you realize that? Just yesterday, they had enough evidence. In John chapter 6 and verse 15, they say, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Apparently yesterday, there was enough evidence. The prophet who was to come into the world was one prophesied in Deuteronomy. A prophet like Moses. The Jews understood him to be the Messiah. Would be another prophet like Moses. And yesterday, they said, this is indeed the prophet. And today they say, well, what sign do you do? On second thought, upon reconsideration, what sign do you do? When our tummies were full, it was evidence enough. But now that we're hungry again, we would like you to give us more bread in order that we might see and believe. These same people who yesterday had enough now proffer the excuse that today there is not enough evidence to believe in Jesus. What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Secondly, the crowd argues that they don't believe because they possess contradictory evidence. So they argue first in verse 30 that they don't possess enough evidence in favor of Jesus. Secondly, in verse 42, they argue that they possess evidence against Jesus. So not only do they not have enough evidence in favor of Jesus, they actually have some evidence against Jesus. Look at verse 42. Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? If Jesus is Joseph's son, they reason, then he couldn't be God's son, as he claims. If Jesus is from Nazareth, they argue, then he couldn't be from heaven, because Nazareth isn't heaven. So the crowd argues that they don't have enough evidence in favor of Jesus, and since they know his father, and they know his place of residence well I guess he couldn't be God's son from heaven then they argue that they don't have enough evidence in support of Jesus claims and that they have too much counter evidence to take Jesus seriously look at the text verse 30 and verse 42 that's the substance of the reasons that they offer in this passage for their unbelief And don't many in our day and age offer the same excuses for unbelief? We don't have enough evidence in favor of Jesus' claims. And in fact, we possess counter-evidence against Jesus' claims. Never mind that Jesus has indeed spread blessings around the earth, as Christians all over the world would testify that they are blessed. And this is in keeping with God's promise to Abraham millennia before the advent of Jesus that in his offspring all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Never mind that Jesus is a descendant of Judah who was promised a scepter in his lineage. Never mind that Jesus was born in Bethlehem as prophesied of the Messiah by the prophet Micah. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, 
whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And this one, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Never mind that Jesus' hands and feet were pierced. Hands and feet were pierced. As prophesied by David in Psalm 22. Listen, before crucifixion was ever invented. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Never mind that Jesus rose from the dead as God declared to the king of Israel so many years prior that he would. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your holy ones see corruption. Listen, as I review what I've said so far, the Old Testament scriptures, which may be empirically dated All of them, before the birth of Jesus, objectively, even unbelieving scholars will recognize the Old Testament scriptures were written beforehand. They lead us to expect someone who is a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of Judah, who would be born in Bethlehem, whose hands and feet would be pierced for the blessing of the nations. And then you say that Jesus doesn't fit the bill. And that it's a coincidence, and that that's not enough evidence? Never mind, as I move on here, that there were multiple witnesses to Jesus' resurrection who had nothing to gain and everything to lose. Including Jesus' own disciples who had abandoned Him when He was arrested. And including over 500 people who claimed to have seen him at the same time. And were still, most of them were still alive at the time that this sighting was recorded. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. See the scriptures lead us to expect all these things. And that he appeared to Cephas, and then the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of all, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. What is the motive for this lie, if indeed it is a lie? If the disciples had not abandoned Jesus at his arrest, there would have been more than three crosses. You understand that? That's why they ran. And all of them, except John, history tells us, were in fact killed for their testimony that Jesus had risen from the dead. What did they gain by this testimony? If indeed in this life only we have hope. We are of all men most to be pitied. Who wants to be martyred or sent into exile on Patmos? And then 500 witnesses at once. Not just 500 people saying, yeah, I saw him too, I saw him too. But 500 at once. 
This is just the tip of the iceberg. But there is so much good reason to believe in Jesus. But never mind all that. Not enough evidence, unbelievers say. Have you, have you even read the scriptures? No. I just know that some people have, and they say it's stupid. Well, do you have enough evidence that they're right? In their bold assertions? And then there's all this supposed counter-evidence. The earth appears to be much older than the Bible says it is. People say with an air of authority, as if this is just a conversation closer. Well, just to give one simple rebuttal to this. On the day that Adam was created, would he have appeared more than one day old? If not, and he was created by a day old, as a day-old baby, who took care of him? God, God creating a mature earth is not a wild hypothesis. That God created an adult man and an adult woman in an adult world in the beginning is not a wild hypothesis. And so if you looked at Adam and saw a man and said, well, the earth must be, Adam must be more than a day old, you would be wrong. Because we don't read that Adam was born in the garden and grew up and then made decisions to sin and so forth. Just a basic rebuttal. That's not the main point of my sermon. But simply to say that this supposed counter-evidence that people offer isn't actually all that compelling upon closer scrutiny. Or, or like, how about this? People can't come back from the dead, so therefore Jesus didn't come back from the dead. Counter-evidence. Well, agreed, first of all, that except by a miracle, people can't come back from the dead. I don't dispute that. But as has been famously said many times, if you can get over the first few words of Scripture, then the rest of it is not hard to believe. In the beginning, God. If there is a God, and there is, then that, whole, that opens up a world of possibilities beyond natural laws and principles. And I could go on and on. People give all kinds of supposed counter-evidence as reason for their unbelief, as this crowd did. Even this, this crowd's counter-evidence. Well, isn't this Joseph's son? And if Joseph's son, then he can't be God's son. <laughs> well, just go read the first couple chapters of Matthew, or go read the first couple chapters of Luke, and that explains it pretty well. Well, he's from Nazareth, so he can't be from heaven. Well, in one sense he's from Nazareth, in another sense he's from heaven. You're creating a false dichotomy. Again, go read the first couple chapters of the Gospels, and it should become reasonably clear to you. Yet, these are the excuses offered then and now for unbelief. Not enough evidence. What sign do you do? Give us more evidence. Or, we have counter-evidence. This is Joseph's son from Nazareth, not God's son from heaven. Right? These are the reasons that these people, this crowd offers for their unbelief. These are the reasons, the excuses that unbelievers now offer for their unbelief. But is this why... Your family members, friends, co-workers, etc. do not believe? Is there a deficiency in the evidence? Is there an abundance of counter-evidence? 
and they are the rational ones, and we are the irrational ones. They are too rational, and there is really not enough evidence and far too much counter-evidence. We are irrational. Not so. Jesus offers in this passage the true reasons for this crowd's unbelief. And here's where we come to a very sobering and grave concept. Notice that there are three descriptors of these people in this text. And these descriptors are the real reasons why people don't believe. They have their excuses, but these are the real reasons from the mouth of Jesus why people don't believe. The first descriptor and reason for the crowd's unbelief is that at least some of these people were not given to Jesus by the Father. That's a conclusion I have drawn and I think we are forced to draw from what is explicitly stated in verse 37. Jesus explains that all that the Father gives Him will come to Him. He goes on to explain in verse 39 that He will lose none of all that the Father has given Him. A different way to say this is that everyone who the Father has given to Jesus will be saved. Everyone who the Father has given to Jesus will come to Jesus in faith and be saved. That's, the, that's, that's not an interpretation. That's the explicit teaching of John chapter 6, verse 37 and verse 39. Here's an inference, which I think is inescapable. Some people are not given by the Father to the Son. Some people are not given by the Father to the Son. Let me explain that. We have no basis whatsoever to argue that all these people in this text eventually came to faith in Jesus. Though perhaps it is possible that some did at a later time. So we are forced to conclude, or let me say, let me state it more softly. It is probable to conclude that at least some of these people were not given by the Father to the Son. Since all who the Father gives will come, that's in verse 37, and all who the Father gives will be saved and not lost, that's in verse 39. I think it's probable to conclude that some of these people were not given to the Son by the Father. Therefore, they didn't come. Therefore, they were not saved. But if you really want to dispute my inference that not all these people eventually came to faith in Jesus and say, well, maybe they did. You don't know that. Okay, fair enough. But I do know that not everyone since Jesus spoke these words in John chapter 6 has come to Jesus. I know that for sure. It's evident 
to any reasonable person that not every individual in human history has come to Jesus. And therefore, here's where we are forced to conclude, not every individual was given by the Father to the Son. Because what does John chapter 6 and verse 37 say? All that the Father gives me will come to me. And what does verse 39 say? I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Everyone whom the Father gives to the Son will come, and everyone whom the Father gives to the Son will be not lost, but raised up on the last day. Which means that all of the people, since Jesus taught us this in John chapter 6, who have died without coming to faith in Christ, were not given by the Father to the Son. There are some people who are not given to Jesus by the Father. Since all whom the Father has given will come, according to verse 37. And since all whom the Father has given will not be lost, but raised up on the last day, according to John chapter 6 and verse 39. And that's a sobering thought. The second and third descriptors of the people in this text are just as sobering. The second descriptor of these people in this text is that as yet, none of them had been drawn by God. Look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Of course, none could come to Jesus unless the Father drew them. That's the explicit statement of this verse. But perhaps in time, the Father would draw some of these people if the Father had given them to the Son, they would eventually come, as we've already seen, and that would mean that the Father would eventually draw them. Yet, as of this point in the conversation, and this point in their lives, none of these people had come to faith in Jesus. Which is why Jesus and these people are having this conversation to begin with. They're having a conversation about their unbelief. And Jesus teaches in this context that they haven't come because they haven't been drawn. The third descriptor is related. None of these people had as yet been taught by God. Look at verse 45. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. If these people had been taught by God, they would come to faith in Jesus. Since none of these people had come to faith in Jesus, therefore none of them had as yet heard and learned from the Father. Obviously then, there is an inward drawing and teaching that God does in and for those whom He intends to save which is more than just the outward revelation of Himself 
in Christ and in the gospel, which is common to all men. The people in front of Jesus had seen Jesus. They had listened to Jesus. They had witnessed signs. They had heard Jesus teaching, I am the bread of life. Later in John's gospel, Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And I and the Father are one. So there is obviously a sense in which they have been taught by God. There is obviously a sense in which they have heard and learned from the Father. But there is clearly, according to this passage, a sense in which they haven't. Jesus says here to these people, you haven't been drawn by God. You haven't been taught by God. And so there must be an inward drawing and teaching that God does in and for those whom He intends to save, which is more than just the outward revelation of Himself in Christ and in His gospel, which is common to all men. The Bible has been given to all men, not in the sense that it's been translated into every language as yet, but it could well be. The work should be done. It ought to be done. God has commanded that it be done, that the gospel be taken to every tribe and language and people and nation, that the gospel be preached according to the ending of Mark unto every creature. The preaching of the gospel goes out to all men. But that's outward stuff. Everyone is to hear this message that Jesus is the bread of life. Everyone is to hear this message. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Everyone is to hear this message that it is the Father's will that whoever looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, as John 6, 40 says. But according to this passage, there is an inward drawing, an inward teaching. Verses 44 and 45, that these people had not experienced even though they had heard the outward call. If you're drawn, according to verse 44, Jesus will raise you up on the last day. Not everybody is raised up on the last day. Therefore, God doesn't draw everybody. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to Jesus. Verse 45. Not everybody comes to Jesus. Therefore, not everybody has heard and learned from the Father. Listen, this is a sobering and a grave concept. But it is irrefutably a biblical concept. The Father has not given every single person to the Son. There are those given to the Son and those not given to the Son. Because all that the Father gives will come. And Jesus will lose not one of all that the Father has given, but raise Him up on the last day. God does not draw everybody. 
For everybody that the Father draws will be raised up on the last day. The outward call goes to all men without exception. But the inward teaching of God does not. Because everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to Jesus. So it's as if Jesus says here, Nah, the reason for your unbelief is not lack of evidence. The reason for your unbelief is not that you have compelling counter evidence. It's that you are not among those that the Father has given me. The triune God hasn't purposed to save you. He hasn't chosen you. He hasn't drawn you. He hasn't taught you. Or at least some of you. Remember, he's speaking to a crowd. Reprobation is real. Reprobation is, in theological terms, the opposite of the doctrine of election. There are those who are elected unto salvation, and the opposite is the reprobates. You could state it more baldly that God has purposed not to save them, or that God has purposed to damn them. You could state it more softly that God has simply not purposed to save them, that God has passed them over. But the reality is that some people will not be saved. And this passage teaches us very clearly that in their case, it's because the Father has not given them to the Son, that God does not draw that God does not teach. Because again, let me just hit this again one more time so that you know I'm not making this up. Because again, look at verse 37. All that the Father gives will come and whoever comes He will never cast out. So there are some whom the Father has not given because they don't come. And There are some who are not drawn by God. Because look at verse 44. Whoever is drawn will be raised up on the last day. And look, there are some who are not taught by God. Because according to verse 45, everyone who has heard and learned from God comes in faith to Jesus. Jesus is saying this to people whom he had taught. Whom he, to whom he had said, I am the bread of life. To whom Jesus preached the gospel. He's saying, you are not taught by God. Which means we're not talking about the outward call, but we're talking about an inward thing. At the least, 
we are compelled to say from this passage that God has chosen not to intervene in the rebellion of some of His creatures. We have caused ourselves as the human race to become dead in our trespasses and sins, as Ephesians 2 and verse 1 says. Like all mankind, as Ephesians 2 says, we Christians also were once dead in our trespasses and sins. We had no ability to resurrect ourselves. All outside of Christ are in that state. And this deadness is why, according to Jesus, the crowd wouldn't believe. In John chapter 6, they were not given to the Son by the Father, not drawn by God, not taught by God. And thus they remain de facto, right? Whoever does not believe is condemned already, according to John chapter 3. They remain de facto dead in their trespasses and sins. And it is therefore or because of this that they do not believe Jesus in John chapter 6. And John chapter 6 doesn't end like the story of Nicodemus ends. Where later on we might infer by his actions at Jesus' death that he had become a believer. John chapter 6 doesn't end as John chapter 4 does with the faith of the Samaritan woman. In this passage, Jesus preaches the gospel to people. And how dare we say it's simply that His methods were insufficient. Jesus preaches to these people and they reject Him and do not believe. And this is what Jesus tells us about human nature in this passage. And their unbelief. Listen to J.C. Ryle here, an old Church of England minister. The favorite notion of man is that he can do what he likes. Repent or not repent. Believe or not believe. Come to Christ or not come. Entirely at his own discretion. In fact, man likes to think that his salvation is in his own power. Such notions are flatly contradictory to the text before us. The words of our Lord here are clear and cannot be explained away. And this brings us to our last point. We've seen the excuses that the crowd offers for their unbelief. Lack of favorable evidence while possessing supposedly counter or contrary evidence to Jesus' claims. We have seen Jesus' exposure of these excuses as just a front for what's really going on. The dead, cold, undrawn, untaught, darkened, sinful heart says it's just an issue of rationality. It's just going where the evidence leads. But according to Jesus, the reality is that it is the very deadness, coldness, distance, Ignorance and darkness of those sinful hearts that keeps man in unbelief. So what is the remedy? Since unbelief is an issue of incapacity, its remedy is not mere persuasion, but resurrection. Ryle comments again, the longer ministers of the gospel live, 
the more do they find that there is something to be done in every heart, which neither preaching, teaching, arguing, exhorting, nor means of grace can do. When all has been done, God must draw or there is no fruit. God's intervention is an absolute necessity. As Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And that's not something that you can do for yourself. And it doesn't happen subsequent to faith. It is a prerequisite in order for you to have faith in Christ Jesus. As Jesus said, unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. And I would add then, therefore, much less enter it. We're often told, enter the kingdom of God and then you will be born again. But Jesus tells us the opposite. Unless you are born again, you can't see it. Much less enter it. Without the new birth, if I may quote Charles Dickens from the Christmas Carol, you're as dead as a doornail. God the Father, listen, God the Father must have given you to God the Son in eternity past. And then in space and time, our triune God must draw you inwardly, teach you inwardly, resurrect you, give you the new birth, or you shall not have any life at all. For Christians, as I've said many times and will say many times again, this ought to humble us. Because you should realize full well that you would still be outside of Christ were it not for the drawing of the Father. You would still be proffering excuses for your unbelief were it not that you were taught by God. You would still be saying there's not enough evidence or I have too much evidence to the contrary, were it not that you were given by the Father to the Son, and our triune God saw to it that you came. This ought to humble us. There is no difference between us and unbelievers but the grace of God. For Christians, understanding this also ought to make us prayerful for the unbelievers in our lives. I'm not saying don't preach the gospel to them, quite the opposite. Do preach the gospel to them. Plead with them. Reason with them. Talk to men about God. But also talk to God about men. When was the last time you prayed for souls? When was the last time you earnestly sought God for the salvation of a loved one? When was the last time you wept before God pleading that He might save a mother, a father, 
a sister, a brother, a child? When was the last time you just got on your knees or on your face before the Lord? Never mind this cool, dispassionate sort of, and we remember our lost relatives and while you're sitting in your easy chair. Listen, there's nothing wrong with praying in your easy chair. I do it all the time. But forbid that we should always just pray from our easy chairs and never have our hearts moved. That we have to stand up and pace or get on our knees or fall on our faces before our God and cry and weep. Oh Lord, save! For as Ryle said, there is something to be done in every heart which preaching, teaching, arguing, exhorting cannot do. And only God may do. So we don't offer that as an excuse for our indolence in evangelism. We talk to men about God, but we talk also to God about men. We plead with men to come. We plead also with God to draw. For Christians, this is how these truths, at least a couple of ways in which these truths ought to shape us. But why did Jesus tell this to unbelievers? After all, that's who he's speaking to here. This whole conversation is Jesus speaking to unbelievers, urging them to have faith in him, and exposing their excuses for why they don't yet have faith in him. Why does Jesus hold out this truth to unbelievers? What's the practical use of telling people yet outside of Christ that there is nothing that they can do to convert themselves or to prepare themselves thereunto, as our confession would state it? Jesus holds himself out even to this crowd among whom at least probably if not surely and I think surely in a crowd this size among this crowd surely stand some reprobates not given by the Father to the Son not drawn, not taught and who will never be drawn and taught Jesus holds himself out even to this mixed crowd as the bread of life available to them look at John 6.32 in which Jesus says my father gives you the true bread from heaven for the bread of heaven the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world I am the bread of life my father gives me to you All of you standing here before me today, to you the bread of life is offered. The Father holds out even to these reprobates, Jesus the bread of life, whom they may have if they will just come. So Jesus can't be telling them of their utter inability in order to close the door in their face as if God would not have them even if they came. Quite the opposite. Jesus gives any encouragement. Pardon me. Jesus gives encouragement to any coming. 
Look at verse 37. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Look, what a... What a... Comforting invitation. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. If you're not sure about the manner of your coming, or the quality of your coming, or the sincerity of your coming, whatever... Look, Jesus speaks these comforting words. If you're hearing all this, and you come, I will never cast you out. So Jesus can't be just simply just being trying to close the door in the face of people who would otherwise come. That can't be what Jesus is doing here. The gospel is too free in this passage for Jesus simply to just be discouraging would-be comers. Rather, Jesus is exposing the falsity of their excuses. It's as if Jesus says, you won't come? Fine. But don't tell yourself that it has to do with the evidence. It is the deadness of your heart that is the real reason that you won't come. So let's just be clear here about what is really going on. And I say to you, all of you this morning, let's be clear here. If there are unbelievers among us today, let's be clear here about what's really going on. If you won't come, it's not because there's not enough evidence. If you won't come, it's not because you possess compelling counter evidence. If you won't come, it's because you are still in the state that all mankind are in outside of Christ Jesus, dead in your trespasses and sins. Be clear about that, and don't kid yourself that it's just because you're too rational. Jesus pulls that rug out from under your feet in this passage. And of course, the haters are going to continue to hate statements like that. The critics of Christianity will continue to be critics. The scoffers will continue to scoff. But in the hands of the Spirit of God, this truth will be a spear to pierce the hardness of heart. A means by which God draws and teaches. A means by which God will bring a dead sinner to life. A means by which the despair is awakened, which leads to a cry to God for salvation. If you go to the doctor and they tell you, you have a very, very, very mild infection. It's so mild that you didn't even know you had it, but it showed up in some tests. It's so mild that it will resolve itself without you even doing anything. You are unlikely to go away concerned whatsoever. But if you go to the doctor and you're told that you're in the last stage of cancer, that you're likely to die barring divine intervention, then you're likely to cry out for divine intervention. Some people will hear this
and their hearts get harder towards God. But some people hear this and think soberly about it and realize, I am as dead as the Bible says. As lost as the Bible says. I am like a sheep who has gone astray. It's true, there is no soundness in me. There really is none righteous. No, not one. Not even me. All my righteousness is as filthy rags. I am dead in my trespasses and sins. I can't rescue myself. And the preaching of these hard truths about human nature in our natural state outside of Christ ever since the fall. These hard truths cut like a surgeon's scalpel which hurt but don't harm. And a sinner is brought drawn taught by God they come to faith in Jesus Christ so unbeliever come to Jesus an open invitation stands before you the Father gives you the true bread from heaven will you eat of it Jesus says here in this passage, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Will you come? He will have you. Oh sinner, will you come? Please come. But if not, don't kid yourself that there's not enough evidence. Or that you have compelling counter evidence. That's not the real reason why you won't come. At its root, it's not a rational issue for you, but a moral issue for you. It's your deadness of heart, darkness of heart, distance from God that keeps you away. You are in desperate need of God to resurrect, to teach, and to draw. The sobering thing, the sobering truth that we've considered this morning is that God does not do that for everyone. Let that sober you up a bit. In one sense, you may come to Christ whenever you want. If you come to Christ, He will have you. In another sense, you may not come to Christ whenever you want. Your own perversity of heart will not allow it. And God may not intervene. Could it be that it is God's will for you to perish in hell? Unbeliever, consider that. Consider that. All that the Father gives will come. But not all come. Therefore, the Father hasn't given. Oh. All that the Father draws will be raised up by Christ on the last day. 
Not all are raised up by Christ on the last day. Therefore, not all are drawn. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to Jesus. Not all come to Jesus. Therefore, not everyone has heard or learned from the Father. These are grave, sobering, but biblical concepts. The reprobate will mock and scoff. But for those whom the Father has given to the Son, though you may be yet outside of Christ, this line of thinking may be a means by which you realize your utter lostness and your utter inability. That you're sobered up to realize that you are hewing for yourself cisterns that can hold no water. That you are eating bread which perishes instead of coming to Jesus, the bread of life. You are not neutral, unbeliever. Your car is in drive. And you are driving fast and furious away from God. Repent today if you sense God's grace at work in your heart. Cry out to God for mercy. And let us all believers cry out to God for mercy on the lost as well.